Tony Barksdale is a retired deputy commissioner of operations and a former acting police commissioner for the Baltimore Police Department. Tony served as a law enforcement officer for 20 years in one of the toughest cities in America. And his mission today is to show communities how Baltimore reigned in its most violent offenders instead of those involved in nonviolent crimes. I talked with Tony about his model for reducing violence and what inspired him to become a police officer and why he holds on to the hope that violence is a problem that can be solved. I'm Josh Morgan. My conversation with Tony is coming up next on The Plural of You, the podcast about people helping people. I've mentioned before on this podcast that crime and violence have never been lower in human history than they are in the 21st century. In the United States in particular, crime overall has decreased significantly since it peaked in the early 1990s. Yet violent crime in the U.S. continues to persist in many urban areas, including specific neighborhoods in Baltimore. In 2015, the riots that followed the death of Freddie Gray, uh, who was a man that died in police custody, they led to a crime wave in the city and homicides spiked, mostly among young black males. The city's newspaper, the Baltimore Sun, ran a headline at the end of 2015 that read, quote, Deadliest year in Baltimore's history ends with 344 homicides, unquote. And that referred to the fact that Baltimore recorded more homicides per capita that year than at any point in the city's history. If we watch the news long enough these days, I'm sorry to say that we'll probably see plenty of other terrifying stories along the same lines. When I talked with Tony, the mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando had happened a day or two before. And at that point, it was the deadliest shooting by a lone gunman in U.S. history. So it, it can be tough to hold on to hope for humanity when we're inundated with events like these, partly because of how the media prioritizes its news coverage. But Tony believes that we don't have to accept violence as a norm in our society. He developed an anti-violence model during his time in law enforcement that can steer police departments toward their most dangerous citizens. And he's promoted it since retiring because he's convinced that we can all work together to make society safer. Tony and I met via Twitter not long ago. And what drew me to him was that much of what he's written about law enforcement differs from what I've read in the past. But he speaks from experience. And there's something else I'd like to say about Tony. I've been genuinely touched a few times by the people I've interviewed for the plural view. And I mean, everyone I've talked to is worthy of praise in their own ways, but Sometimes just talking with these people has left me feeling enriched. And Tony is one of those people. Uh, after we talked, I felt a real sense of comfort, and it's kind of hard to describe. And I think that's because he believes so strongly in what you'll hear him say. The subject's a heavy one, but I hope what Tony says will inspire you just like it did for me. Here's Tony Barksdale, retired Deputy Commissioner of Operations for the Baltimore Police Department. <laughs> So somewhere I, I got the impression that community policing would be a, a great solution, not only for violence in our country, but I guess to improve relations between police departments and the public. Mm -hmm. But you pointed out that community policing only works as part of a, a larger enforcement strategy, and it's not like the solution in itself. And I hadn't heard that before. So I was wondering if you would mind explaining what you mean by that. Community policing is a great concept, but in a community or city where you have so much violence, a lot of drug issues, you definitely have to look more towards a focused enforcement model. And I'm not saying um, you have to go to the broken windows model, which is 
to me, in a sense, it's almost like the complete opposite of community policing. Because with community policing, you have more engagement with the community, of course, but broken windows model, um, as far as my experience was early on in my career, we saw more mass arrest. And I am against mass arrest, but I am also against a model that's not honest with the community. In the early 90s, we had what was called the Police Athletic League. And we had officers dedicated to kids that came into these police athletic leagues at the local schools and the rec centers. And that model was supposed to pay off in the future. The whole thing was 20 20 years from now, these kids are going to be, you know, in a great position and the violence is going to drop in the city. Well, just last year in 2015, the city recorded a record high in homicides per capita. While that model was going in the early 90s, I was a detective in narcotics and I knew there were plenty of violent individuals running around then. We had a lot of arrests, but the homicides were still up. The shootings were still up. And back then I started to think there has to be a better way to get this done because we're, we're producing statistics, but we're not helping the city. As a matter of fact, when you run around, and uh, I hate saying run around, but if, you, if you're on the street and you're just going right. from arrest to arrest to arrest, look at all of the people in that city that now have criminal records. Look at all of the people in that city who can't afford bail and we're piling them into the jail system. And Mm -hmm. then you start to look at what happens to them once they're in jail or once they get out, what's their future? I uh, had one arrest that really troubled me. It was when I was a detective, I was about to be promoted to sergeant. And this is in 1998. It was in Gilmore Homes, the location where the Freddie Gray incident occurred in Baltimore. There was a uh, late night drug shop and there were about 100 addicts being sold heroin at one time. That's what they used to do. Get as many addicts together at one time and cause as much confusion so we couldn't pick out who was the one in the crowd distributing the drugs. Mm-hmm. So my squad, we jump out and people start running everywhere. And an older guy runs into me with heroin in his hand. And it was late. <laughs> and I'm saying, oh, come on. So I, I say, OK, put your hands behind your back. Give me, the, give me the dope. Put your hands behind your back. And this gentleman said, well, can I please ride with you? Don't put me in that wagon, please. I can't take it. So I said, okay, sure, you can ride with me. We got down to central booking, and the corrections officer said, Detective, this gentleman is asking that you stand beside him through the process. Oh, wow. I said, okay, okay, that's fine. Now, this is completely, this is not the normal. So I stand stand with him, and uh, he said, please don't put me in a cell by myself. I said, okay. So I go to the corrections officer's. Hey, please put him in a cell with some guys who are 
you know, maybe had a little too much to drink. Don't put him in a cell where he's going to get hurt. Please look out for him. Okay, fine. Did he indicate why? No, he's not. He didn't say why, you know, why this is going on. And I'm like you, I'm like, what is going on? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, 30 days later, about 30 days later, I'm in court and the case gets called and up stands two very well-dressed members of the United States military. I, I forget which branch they turn and uh, ask if, if I'm present in the courtroom. So I'm, I'm wondering what is going on. So the guy that I had arrested stands up and it turns out that he was a Vietnam war hero. Oh, wow. And because of what he suffered through in Vietnam, he had turned to drugs. Right. And he turned and he turned in that courtroom and told me, thank you for how you treated me. Thank you. It sounds very humbling. It was, it was really, it was a lot. And I thought about all of the arrests that I had made at that point. I worked in a very strong squad and we were across the city making arrests. And I thought about what power I had in making arrests and who was I arresting. So my mind really started to turn at that point to say, you've got to do better with with getting the right people. So community policing, broken windows, that's that's okay. But what I wanted to do became focused enforcement and not lock up the world. Yeah, you want to not perpetuate those structural problems. Exactly. I yeah. don't want to be a part of it. What I wanted to do was focus on individuals that we can all agree upon. And when I say all, I mean police and the community that these individuals are dangerous and should not be on the street. Um, so to do that, I uh, went to, by this time now, I'm a sergeant and I'm on the way to being a lieutenant. And I had a small group of detectives. I handpicked them. And we started to go through the detective's notes. And I said, let's find names that keep coming up. And when we started to find those names, that's where we started to focus. And the results of focusing on the right individuals, it changed my career. It it, it really did. Is that how you came to develop your anti-violence model? Yes, sir. It's based on focused enforcement. It's it's intelligence driven. But once you're identified as a a killer or um, what we call a stick up boy. Repeat offenders. Yes. Repeat offenders. We just focus on you. You cannot work too many of these cases at one time because of uh, limited resources. So the object is to identify you, and to put together a solid case for prosecution. Always keep it in mind that from day one, this case is going to trial, and this case has to be solid beginning until the end. And I was fortunate in in Baltimore, the United States attorneys are just in a, a powerful group. The state's attorneys are definitely 
as involved on the state level. And when my team started to bring better cases to them, we found that things really started to go smoothly. We got the convictions, we would get the next case going, and we just kept subtracting the most violent individuals, the repeat offenders. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like it's been successful. Well, it it was successful. It's uh, I'm retired now, so it's gone through some significant changes, and it's sad to see. In preparing for this interview, I pulled some of the, the statistics for the model. In the first six months in 2007, the model produced a 65% homicide reduction and a 74% shooting reduction in the two toughest districts in Baltimore City, the Eastern and Western District. That's impressive. Yes. And they kept it up. I I look at those numbers and I wonder where the city could be if if they stayed with the model, but that I'm, that's not in my control. Mm-hmm. They've moved to a community policing model, and right now the department, the city is struggling to top the horrible 2015 violence numbers. What's appealing about community policing versus a model like yours? Like, do you know why they would choose that over something like you're promoting? I mean, it's it's politics. And at the same time, maybe that's the direction that the commissioner uh, believes he wants to take the department. I look at the numbers and say, hey, it's flashing. If the department was a, a car, then all of the dashboard lights are flashing pull over, take me in for service. And that's not what's going on. They're sticking with this model and the homicides are still going. We just had a 13 year old kid killed the other night. Well, it was one thirty in the morning. That doesn't matter to me. And that's the type of thing that doesn't have to be. So community policing looks good. You've got the great pictures with the community and you're smiling with them and you're at a cookout and and it appears everything is going great. But you got to look at your crime. Now you can get to a community policing model when you get control of your crime, but now's not the time. You've got to get out there and you've got to confront these violent repeat offenders. Right now, that has to be the focus, not to feel good. We can feel good after we win, but Mm -hmm. they're not winning right now, if you understand me. So this is something you're clearly passionate about. Uh, I mean, I can hear it in your voice. Do you remember what sparked your initial interest in law enforcement? My my mother and my grandmother were both uh, corrections officers. Oh, okay. But I, I remember as a kid, like the first day, I was walking to school by myself, like the first, it was maybe my first or second day. And I was crossing the street and uh, a guy uh, approached me and he had a a whole bunch of folded tiles in his hand. And he said, Hey, give me your money. And I'm, I'm a kid. I mean, maybe, maybe eight or nine. And I said, no. 
I grew up in West Baltimore. You can't, I mean, even at a young age, you, you got to you, try you better know, than that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so say no. And I started looking for something to throw at him or maybe I could kind of, you know, if I could get past him, I could make it to the schoolyard and then into the building. But as I was saying, no, he got frustrated and he flipped the towel up and he had a gun. He had a, a revolver. And he pointed that revolver right in my face and said, give me your money. And I, I reached in my pocket and I, I gave him my money. He cursed at me and uh, he took my money. He jogged away. And I got into school. And the principal, I'll never forget her name, was Miss Staten. And there was a very nice woman who was in the school. Her name was, I believe it was yeah, Miss Trogdon. And they said, why are you late? And I told them that I had gotten robbed. And it was just so much at that point. I just broke down. And they hugged me and uh, got me, you know, some water and just saying it's going to be okay. And they called the police. And I'll never forget the, the, the officer that came. He was just huge. I mean, he, he just appeared so huge. I don't know if it's because I was a kid and it's my first real interaction with a cop. Mm -hmm. He bent down on his knee and he said, you did the right thing. You did great. Everybody's not like that. Okay. Wow. That made a difference to me as a kid throughout my life. I, I've seen cops do good things. I remember seeing cops help old ladies cross the street or, mm -hmm. you know, I've seen them make arrests. I've seen positivity with policing. And then when I was in my early 20s, I saw more and more young officers who looked like me. Well, I wasn't in my 20s just yet, but I saw more and more young officers that looked like me. And I, I said, that's it. I want to be a police officer. As horrible as that experience was when, you know, you were robbed, you had that response afterward, like everyone was trying to comfort you and encourage you. And the officer told you you were doing the right thing. I mean, that I feel like that's the kind of thing you wanted to reciprocate and pay forward to everybody else when you became an officer yourself. I, I definitely feel that way. Look at me. I said, feel that way. Like I'm still active. I'm retired. I want to talk. <laughs> but no, I, I do. That I don't want people to suffer. I know the world isn't fair. I know that. But I, I know that things can be done about gun violence and violent offenders. I know it can. I, I showed Baltimore that it can be done. Mm -hmm. The team, the, the police department showed that it can be done. I just want to uh, help. I want to continue to help in any way possible. So. Again, you know, it sounds like you're really passionate about this. And I imagine there were situations when you felt overwhelmed or frustrated. And I'm wondering, like, what sustained you all those years? Why even today do you still hold out hope that there can be a difference? I am, I guess I don't even want to say the word, but I'm obsessed with trying to help. I've seen so many crime scenes. I drive through the city. And I can remember crime scenes. I can remember how bodies were laying. I, I can remember inside of, of certain houses. That's something I never considered that, 
you know, as an officer, you, you're exposed to all these traumatic experiences and then even just driving through the city can trigger those again. Yeah, it, it happens. I responded to so many police when police were uh, severely injured. I, I remember that. It's a lot that goes on that cops don't show you. And as I'm telling you this, I can remember all of these things. But what keeps me going is that I know it can be changed. I talked to some individuals on Twitter and I I hear them, oh, things won't change. And you got to believe, you got to believe that it can be changed. You you can, this doesn't have to be this way. That's why your show, this is incredible that you do what you do because I don't feel there's enough hope out there. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't all negative no. you know, in your career. Like, I'm sure you had some positive experiences too. Do you have any stories that you're fond of from your time in the force? You're absolutely right. There is a lot of positives. It can come from fellow officers or it could come from the citizens. I remember one time I was working in Cherry Hill with my partner and it was the the city had this thing about any open fire hydrants must be shut off. So I see an open fire hydrant and there are a whole bunch of kids out. And I turned to him and I say, uh, Mikey, I got to shut the fire hydrant off. They'd even given us the tools to shut the fire hydrants off. (laughs) So I said, Mikey, I got to shut it off. He said, I'm telling you, don't get out this car. I said, I've got to. That's that's the order. We just got to shut it off. And he says, "Okay, go ahead. So I get out of the car and I say, "Okay, kids, I'll get you ice cream if you get out of this water. So come on, anybody, the ice cream truck. And it was it was coming down the street. And I said, I'll treat the ice cream, but I got to shut this off. And I turned around and I just started feeling the water hit the back of my shirt and go down my neck. <laughs> they, had turned, they had, you know, diverted the water up on me and my whole, I was just dripping in water. And he's sitting in the car and he says, told you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I, you know, I wasn't even mad with the kids. They were kids, but it was the funniest thing. And here I am. Working in Cherry Hill, which at that point was one of the toughest and still is one of the toughest communities in Baltimore. And they're drenching me with this water. And I just stood there and I just laughed. And it that was good. And just the, the teamwork, some great officers. And then the, the citizens. Sometimes a community and the citizens are worried about being labeled as informants or whatever. And you make a good arrest and you get the right person. And you're walking the arrest out of the uh, neighborhood and you you might make eye contact briefly with an older citizen and they just give you a wink. They don't say anything. They just give you a wink like, yeah, that's <laughs> a sense of relief. That's, yeah. But it, it's that's all they can say. That's all they can do. And it's more than enough. That was more than enough to keep me coming back to try to help that community. There were definitely great times, great people. So you're right about that. There are a lot of pluses to the job. It's not all negative. For people that are concerned about relations between police and the public or like the problems of violence in our country, would you have anything you could say to kind of reassure people 
you know, hey, we can do this. You know, we can solve these problems. It'll be okay. I think that if you look around, there are things that work. And it's going to the things that we know can work. I got to tell you, I mean, we're talking about things. Look at the incident in Orlando Mm -hmm. and how quick something like that can happen. But look how the public reacted. We didn't fold. They didn't fold. What did they have? Over 600 individuals lined up next day to give blood. Yeah. And I saw there were people walking by the lines, handing out supplies to the people that were waiting in line. So it was like people helping the helpers. That's what I'm talking about. That's what gives me hope. When I see other people who care, like people like you, you care and I care. And I know that there are at least 600 plus minimum in Orlando that care. And we are here. We are on this earth and we're here together. And the negative cannot beat us. It can't. And I know it's hard and I know we go through tough times, but we got to keep going and, and, and just stay on positivity and helping one another. And if I sound like a hippie, then so be it. Call me a hippie. <laughs> I don't care. Not at all. But, but I've been through it. I've been through the hard times and we got to hold on and make it back to the good times. Is there anything that you would recommend that someone could do if, to make a difference? I think you're living proof that there is a possibility that things can change. It's just maybe someone doesn't necessarily know how they can get involved. Because I look at, at situations like, you know, there's some neighborhoods in Baltimore, for example, that have been struggling for years and years. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like there's not a lot of hope there. What can someone do to make a difference in that way? Okay, if if you can safely, and when I say safely, uh, I mean where you don't have to worry about someone approaching you or your family members. If you can safely advise police on crime in your community, then do so. But if you can't do it in a safe manner, then I would not say risk yourself or your family In that direct route, perhaps you could, on a day where you had some time, maybe you could go to the district, if the the police district is outside of your neighborhood and report it directly, or you could attend community meetings or or build a a community group that tries to keep things straight in, in your neighborhood. There are some neighborhood groups that are so strong that Criminals, just certain blocks, they just won't even, they don't even want to walk down the block because there's a drill. The, the, the members, if they see these two guys, they're on the phone, they're calling 911. If they see something strange, they're on the phone, they're calling for the police. And some of these communities, they'll come out. They won't stay behind their door. They'll come out on their steps and say, officer. They do not belong around here, and this is what they were doing. And when you see that in a community, that's really powerful. I would love to see more communities like that, but I do understand there are some hard neighborhoods with some evil individuals roaming around, and you need the police to do a little more work before you can get to that. 
which is, in my mind, you're moving closer to a community policing model. But before you get there, you've got to subtract more of these violent offenders off of the streets. It can be overcome. It, it can be. So the whole thing is, if you can do it safely. Now, what if someone wanted to learn more about you and your work? Where would be the best place to learn more about you or even get in touch with you? Info at TonyBarksdale.com would be the uh, best method. I'm really hoping to get into the consulting world, and I'd really like to try to help. So that is the best way to reach me. And you're on Twitter also. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, Deputy Barksdale. Deputy Barksdale. Okay. Is there anything I haven't asked that you'd like to talk about? No, sir. Just the stuff we talked about. That's a lot for me. Yeah. I haven't talked about like everything together like this. <laughs> it was definitely a good conversation. Thank you. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks for all your help. I really appreciate it, Tony. Okay, sir. Take care. This is the Plural of You. I'm Josh Morgan, and the show's website is pluralofyou.org. That's all for now. Thank you for being kind today. Take care. <laughs>